in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. In your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. And have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Welcome back, everybody, to It's Not Just In Your Head. Um, I've, I didn't tell you this over the phone earlier, Harriet, but I have had some COVID symptoms that might just be in my head. My so. girlfriend's housemate lost her sense of smell after having a whole bunch of respiratory symptoms over the week and started wearing a mask. And then my girlfriend was like, oh, crap, what if she's positive? So we right. both got tested and I've been like hardcore isolating in my room and only wearing a mask out in the house with my housemates. Um, it's an almost funny segue to our conversation about dating because, you know, I've been with my girlfriend for almost a year and we can't really do our dating thing because we live in separate houses. We can't oh. see each other, you know, and that's like what everybody's experiencing is like, especially in the dating, in the singles and the dating world, like you can't. Right physically interact with people. Although some people are breaking the rules, which I think is yes. a terrible idea personally, but I also understand where it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got tested. She already got her test results back. She's negative. So I hope that means I I'm hope probably. You are too. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I feel okay. Yeah. It's also, I don't know what it's like in Santa Barbara, but here the allergies are terrible. So They're pretty bad here too. Yeah, that may be allergy related. If you feel, you know, if you can't smell things and you feel congested, that yeah. could well be allergies. Yeah, there's been some kind of cold thing going around too. It's it sucks. Like since we're still in the pandemic, you might just have like regular sniffles or like a a cold that lasts a couple of days, and you you know yeah. you think that you have this like horrible death, death thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, I wish we recorded. So, dear listeners, I wish you could hear the 30-minute conversation by phone, Harriet, <laughs> and I just had. We, that was like the coolest conversation we've ever had. Um, oh, well, before we jump into it, also, everyone, we do have a Patreon now. So, you can support us with um, a range of really small to really big monthly um, donations to help support the podcast and all the work we put into it. So, there's the plug. It's patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. No pressure. Just enthusiasm. Yes. Just we, enthusiasm. Lots of it. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, we're both we're both pretty low energy from my like COVID scare <laughs> sniffles and your allergies. So this might just be a lower energy episode. But um, although we energize each other, and that's yeah, neat. we do. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah, you got me excited. I think we just there's a good synergy we have. Yes, so. I think so too. Um, so dating, why, who cares? Let's just sit, change the subject. Let's talk about something else. We already talked about it. <laughs> well, we're talking about dating because dating is a way for people to get together and to connect. And we're in a very frightening environment of disconnection, not only because we're a declining empire in capitalism <laughs> and the worst COVID country in the world, yep. but because dating is about connection and looking for intimate connection. And like all other things that unite people besides the movement, thank goodness, it's yeah. under assault and it has been for a long time. And we want to talk about how dating has changed and how people are have a much harder time to getting together on a romantic level the way they do on so many other levels in the United States. And we have, so the fancy term neoliberalism, I think is a really good embodiment of the larger zoom out discussion about dating. But we also have this great phenomenon of Harriet being 78 and me being 35 in that she grew up in a time when dating happened in person people talking to their neighbors and within their unions and within their school and everything schools, just, just within sort of organically uh, derived communities yes. and having to like learn the organic uh, tricky social skills of asking people out on dates and 
sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you have to like learn how to deal with rejection and learn how to talk to people. And I've grown up in the generation where, you know, I did some, did a fair amount of like, in just, Hey, want to go out type of stuff. But I've, I'm of the generation that evolved into that doesn't happen anymore where you are expected to meet people almost exclusively through dating apps. And that era is conveniently the neoliberal era. That's, that's the exact like historical shift that occurred. So we want to just, we want to try to analyze that a little bit from like an intellectual and like economic an point emotional of view. And then, point. And, and emotional, but I think, yeah, then zoom back into like, why is it so hard? Why are so many people so lonely? Why does, why does the, the dating app world seem so, um, I think most people you talk to would say like, this sucks. I hate the what? dating app thing. It's I think most people, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it can be really humiliating as well, but why don't we get into, so what are those shifts that happened over the last half a century that went from people talked to each other to now they don't, they don't right. live in a place for a long time. Their jobs are not guaranteed to last a very long time. How did we end up, you know, looking into screens to find love? Well, I think partly that's a phenomenon across the United States. As um, Robert Putnam wrote in, I think, 1990, um, there are fewer people involved in anything. Now, this was before Black Lives Matter, but uh -huh. there were fewer people involved in anything than were involved in bowling leagues alone in the 1970s. And then those studies were duplicated by Robert Altemeyer about every five or 10 years, a, a um, researcher and sociologist in Canada, and they were duplicated for the United States and Canada, and they found the same things, that people are more and more isolated. And Cacioppo, in his book on loneliness, talks about that. Because really, before the internet, and before television took over people's whole sense of what entertainment is, people were very social. We got together, you went to the movies, you went to the beach and with a group of friends. There were other people on the beach with their group mm. of friends. You went hiking, mm. you talked to people and people were not presented as a terrible danger to one another. That really started with the advent of the CIA dumping all those drugs in the black community after the war mm. in Vietnam. Because before that, in New York City, apartment buildings, big ones and small ones, people kept their doors open. In the tenements, they were always open. In my apartment where I lived with my parents, which was sort of a bourgeois apartment, as a little girl, we used to go and visit people, me and my sister, because people had their door mm -hmm. open. And that was a very much more trusting society. We weren't ripping each other off as much and a much more social society. That has changed. It's changed because people don't stay in the same place. They don't have the same job. We've converted from a manufacturing economy where there was a factory and people were in that place, the majority of working in that workplace and then finding a partner there at work or at church or at leisure in some way or another at a bowling league or basketball game or whatever. And then going out together and finding a partnership that was permanent because people didn't used to get divorced with the same frequency and having children and imagining a future. That was particularly true of white Americans since white males in America at that time, really until the late 1970s, had wages that were called family wages because they could support a dependent wife and children. And blacks would never accord that. We were always a super racist nation. And neither were other people of color. 
but we also were an overwhelmingly white nation now then as we are now not. By the 1950s, there will be more people under five years old who are people of color in the United States than there are white. But in those days, we were about a between 80 and 90% white nation and a prosperous nation. We also, after World War II, we were the only intact economy so that the United States was manufacturing and economic king of the world and there was prosperity and there were good salaries. So that those were the background of this more sociable, more settled, more predictable future. To also to clarify, when we when Harriet mentions it was mostly it was like a way higher supermajority of white people, we're not like reminiscing on that to say like Oh, well, thank God it used to be so white and that's why things Good worked well days. or something like that. Yeah, no. absolutely not. It's more like the context. And I think this is where you can, the sort of fascism, socialism split becomes really clear when you think about the reason, the arguments for why people talk about sort of the decline of, of the American empire and the American economy. Because right wing people will say, well, yeah, look at all the... Um, look at all the sort of racial integration and the immigration. Um, that must be why, but yes. we're, we're here to say that, you know, the particular form of capitalism we're living under that's typically called neoliberal capitalism, free market capitalism. There were very, very specific things that happened, not all at once. They kind of happened gradually, but you know, they, they were culminated kind of in the Reagan era, like most in like the most extremely obvious form of, um, kind of gutting the welfare state, privatizing everything, outsourcing jobs, um, establishing right-to-work laws, like general anti-union laws. And what that did across every sector of society, I mean, you know, race, gender, like whoever you were, was that neoliberalism created this hyper-individualized society that we now, like my generation, millennials, don't know any other way. We don't realized that it wasn't always like this. So back in the day when people had more social co cohesion within neighborhoods, workplaces, uh, churches, like Harriet said, bowling leagues or whatever, there were, there were just more sort of social groupings um, that people belonged to. And whether or not that was across racial lines, I mean, that's a, you know, that definitely should be talked about. No, we were a racist um, society all the way through. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, I feel like there's potential like back then, if you could have sort of like dug into the racism bit and then moved toward equality, that would have been a lot better than the class disparity became so extreme for everybody. It wasn't like just white people got sort of knocked down a few pegs. It was like everybody got knocked down a few pegs, many um, pegs many pigs and white people were then told, well, it's their fault. It's all these other, these people of color's fault. But anyway, the, to me, the most interesting thing, bringing it back to dating is the, the shifts in the economy over the last 50 years made it so much harder mm -hmm. for people to even find opportunities to get to know each other over a longer period of time. Whereas now with dating apps, you don't really know what you're going to get. Like people are really good at, making them seem a certain way. And Harriet and I in our really long phone conversation talked about this of how it really starts to look like a market, uh, like the market logic entered into people's dating behaviors on like Tinder and Bumble and all these, all these apps, because it's like you're trying to market yourself to a certain market demographic to get something from them. And so you don't talk about the side effects of your product like your neuroses, <laughs> your like your right. issues with like drugs and alcohol, or if you have a history of like violence or something, you really just try to portray yourself as the most upbeat, smart, like who, whoever the sort of demographic is you're going for. Like I'm the wokest person in town. I <laughs> hike more than every, everybody. I do more yoga. Like whoever you're, you know, I listen to the most up-to-date hip hop, whatever your sort of market is in the dating market, you really actively try to kind of deceive people and it's something that you can 
you can fool people with pretty well because of the way that dating apps and social media work is that, you know, you're just getting words and images. You're getting like symbolism of personhood. You're not actually getting the experience of the person and you're removing the person from the community in which they live. So you can't really vet them by asking the neighbor's aunt, say, oh, is John, what do you think about Johnny? I think he's kind of cute. Should I go on a date on date with him? And she says, right. Oh yeah, he is a good Christian boy or he's, <laughs> he's a hard worker or he has an alcohol problem. And he, you know, I heard he smacked his, his ex-wife or whatever. You shouldn't talk to him. There's nobody knows anybody that knows anybody. That's right. Really. That's right. And one of the things that we have to look at is what happened to our society basically is that between 18 20 and the 1970s, every generation of families headed by a white male did better than the generation before. Even during the Depression, if you had a job, prices went down faster than wages. And so white families who had jobs could get ahead. That all changed in the late 70s with the advent of sophisticated international communication systems like... Whoa faxes and super quick phone conversations and jet travel and computers. And so that people, capitalists realized, I don't have to pay people $18, $20 an hour. I can fly my operation to China mm-hmm. or Pakistan or India and pay $2 an hour, a dollar or 50 cents. And I don't have to worry about these pesky environmental restrictions and labor laws. And so they mm-hmm. deserted the working class and then encouraged working class people to be angry at blacks who were trying to get civil rights then or women mm-hmm. who were trying to get equal rights then. Mm-hmm. And so that you had a confluence of factors in which the capitalists disguised what was going on. However, that was going on. And what was going on is that we became a society in which there were huge discrepancies. In 1970, we were the most egalitarian, equal country in the Western world. Other than the racism part. Yes, it was egalitarian, (laughs) but the mass of people were white, so it didn't show up in the racial statistics. And now we are the least egalitarian economically. We're not talking about racially. We're talking about economically. We have as great a disparity between rich and poor as they had before the French Revolution. Amazing. It's like Pharaoh's time. And this crept up on people. And so that, and people didn't know what was happening to them. And they more and more retreated. Meanwhile, television was being pushed, sitting in front of their own TV set, being purchased, being purchasers instead of participants. And then computers came in, which you see individually. You see your movies now individually on Netflix, Mm -hmm. and you are on the internet by yourself, and the social sphere disintegrated. And people now, even to connect romantically, have a problem in terms of trying to connect romantically and go on the internet. It's funny as your phone goes off too, um, the, the many ways that we, we, uh, we have to connect through technology now. Um, so it's really isolating. And I think that, you know, Harriet, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong about this, but I think that what you and I connect on so much as mental health professionals is that we have these insights. I don't know where we got them from, just maybe our political activities, but we don't see the epidemic of people being lonely and isolated as individual problems we see them in this context like we see them as like well this is what happened and this is still sort of the economic and socio-cultural like like thing we're swimming in but that's right it's and you know therapeutically it can be really hard honestly i mean you don't tell a client like oh well it's neoliberalism man like get out there and fight the (laughs) the power it like doesn't help anybody feel any better um although although as we said in the last episode organizing is good for mental health very feel strongly about that um but this is kind of, these are the trickle-down, um, you know, we talk about trickle-down economics. This is actually right. trickle-down economics. What happened is um, p- 
people don't even know how to connect with each other. People don't no. know how to date and find love. They know how to get on Tinder and put like the best like like photo filter from their little micro camera on their device. They don't even know who made it in what country and what those people were paid or whatever. They take a selfie of themselves in a in a physical location that makes them look like they're outdoorsy or they go to the hip hop club, like whatever the thing is in their in group that they want to sort of market to people. They use some kind of filter. They like, you know, take the blemishes out of their face or whatever they can. They, they literally treat themselves as advertisements in a market to desperately try to connect with other people. And the assumption now is that the best you're probably going to get is maybe like a one night stand, even though like, you know, most people feel like shit and they just feel like, well, that was an empty uh, not, not yeah. very fulfilling, you know, thing, but it's also like even the term hookup culture, um, that's, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't a thing in Harriet's time. I can't imagine, you know, you would Harriet say like, Oh, everybody was hooking up all the time. And no, they, they didn't weren't. remember the other person's name. Like, I don't know. I don't know what his name was, but, um, that has sometimes happened, but it was not, it was aberrational. Also, we didn't mm-hmm. look at other humans as products. We didn't, thumb through on Tinder all these different pictures and think, oh, that one's good, that one's good. Oh, I went out with this one. This one might be better. I won't I won't bother mm-hmm. getting to know this person. I'll find a better right. one. Like that Coca-Cola might taste better than the, than the Pepsi or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And so that people yeah. become products for you. And that and people are terribly lonely. Very much they want they want to connect because it's a lonely society. And our country is particularly bad on that. You know, in Sweden, one of the things that they did noticing the changes in Sweden is that the new buildings, a lot of the new buildings have big collective spaces and smaller apartments, which they particularly market to young people so that you won't just be in your own little cubicle. You'll go out and see the film they're having, play the games that they do, encouraging connection. We don't encourage connection. We discourage it because it might lead to political connection in which you realize, wait a minute, we're being wronged here. Hmm. So that there's an isolationist thrust as well as you sell more products if you sell one to each individual. This also kind of connects to, uh, oh, what's his name? The comedian guy. He wrote a book called uh, Modern Romance. Uh, Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari, yeah. Yeah, he wrote this. I read it a while back when I was like, really, because I I had, oh, really? Oh, cool. Um, Yeah, I mean, I was like, definitely, I wasn't at like incel level, I don't think, unless maybe some people thought this, but like years (laughs) ago, um, because I was, I was in and out of the dating app thing for for years. um, And it was really, really hard to find uh, anything that like felt good, really. Um, There were some, like, I feel it's weird saying these kinds of things as therapists, uh, but like, there were some hookups. Yes. Uh, there were some like really short lived relationships. There were attempts at longer term things that didn't work out. Um, I, I recall at that time when I was in the thro- in the, the throes of the, the dating app misery and the, the roller coaster of it. It's like, there's, you know, you meet there's, you have some good experiences from it, but it's mostly just a weird experience. I read, um, Ansari's book and his, historical analysis because he wrote it with a sociologist was that the majority of marriages um used to occur from from arranged marriages and um i remember thinking like feeling like ew well that's gross that people would just like kind of force two people to get together because the families know each other and they, they know that guy's family is trustworthy and they have money and vice versa and like the girl's pretty or whatever it was <coughs> but i recall Maybe I'm wrong, but I recall the data showing that there is generally pretty high satisfaction in cultures that still have arranged marriages. I think in India, I mean, maybe that's not true. Mm-hmm. or Maybe there's something wrong with the data. But for the first time, I thought, well, what, well, why is it that like me and everybody I know who's my age is like so picky? They're like, well, that person's not good enough or that person's annoying or like they chew too loudly or they're, the, the ink stain on their pants is just like they're really sloppy. Like, how is it that? Where did we learn to think that way about people if the norm used to be that somebody just kind of pairs you with somebody and I mean I don't I it, it, I'm sure it didn't work perfectly but no. I'm sure there were and are tons of problems with it 
Um, but it's just a whole different way of thinking about relationships of like how you meet people it and is. like what criteria you're going for. Cause well, now it get, they didn't even have dating then they didn't have dating. You didn't dating right. started when people moved into cities, when women moved out of the protection of their own home and went out with groups of other women to the movies and guys went out with other mm. groups of guys to the movies and people met each other. And when women mm -hmm. went into work in factories and so did men in the cities before that families mostly arranged it. And, and I've had clients from different cultures who have had arranged marriages. And usually the parents mm. have a couple of suitors in mind and the couple gets a chance to meet each other once and see if they like each other and they like what they see and if they don't okay then they can mm. wait and choose from the other two or whatever mm. but there was a sense of they it happened with a public life and our lives are more mm. and more privatized now and mm. so that it's disappearing as people are individually pushed into their little houses and also mm. it happened when people imagined they'd meet a partner settle down and be together for the rest of their lives. Now they mm. don't because their, their lives are precarious. Their jobs mm. are precarious. They'll probably move. And the sense of permanence is not there. And not even of mm. married couples, the biggest development in married couples is married couples, no children. It's too expensive. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's actually been the biggest thing in conversations I've had. Like, there's because you'll on the from my, uh, you know, the case study research I can uh, talk about from my experience over the last decade is, um, you know, there are some women on dating apps that are just like looking for kids and family, period, right. and they're just honest about it. You know, right. and a lot of women feel that way, but they don't want to say it because they right. they know that most guys will say, "Oh, well, this this chick wants to settle down. I don't, I'm not into that. I just want to mm -hmm. hook up." Um, but that's a conversation I've actually had with a few people I've dated. I mean, even my, my current, current girlfriend is like, we're like, we don't know what the world's going to look like in five years. Like, it's actually really terrifying. Um, where like, I, it's like, I got a master's degree in clinical psychology and now I'm a licensed marriage family therapist. And I still don't actually feel like that guarantees that I'm going to have steady employment over the next decade. Like, I actually don't know. That's right. <clears throat> I feel like anything could happen. And yeah, I mean... 20 30 years ago i think most people probably felt like oh, I, I could probably stick with this job for a while yes um and it's it's but that's the the thing is too that we're, we're swimming in this and so it doesn't it's the norm it's like fish don't know water's wet like i don't think most millennials let alone you know the zoomer generation um like understand this is the the the, the culture now that you don't know where you're going to live, where you're going to work. Um, you don't expect good wages or good benefits or good working conditions or good living conditions. It just like Rachel said in the last episode that um, people, especially in bigger cities where the, the demand for housing is higher, you don't even necessarily feel like you can speak up about a moldy apartment because um, right. you know that, you know, they'll probably just they raise might kick the you rent. out, paint over it and raise the rent. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's just a, it's a it's new changed. terrain. It's really hard to wrap your head around it. Yeah. Also, as American jobs were outsourced by the millions, primarily mm. what were most jobs, which were male jobs, people right. just, they don't have the kind of jobs. In the 60s, you could be active, you could drop out a while, then you could come back and you knew you could get a job. And yeah. even people of color could always get a job, a lousy job, but a job. Now mm. that isn't the case because we've outsourced the jobs and mechanized and robotized the jobs without any control. And here we have to look at American capitalism that doesn't have the tempering forces of socialism and communism to keep it afraid and in line because outsourcing is illegal in Germany and all over Scandinavia and in France so mm. that they don't have the same problem and they're not always threatened. 
Americans now, it's um, more than, what is it, 45 million, almost 50 million people, that's almost a third of the workforce, applied for unemployment. It was 50 million people applied for unemployment altogether. And yeah. so how can you plan a future if you don't even know if you'll have a job? Mm. And now men and women both need jobs to make less than what a male, a white male wage used to earn. And so what our capitalist profiteering economy has brought on us is a level of terrible insecurity, which then interferes with our connection. Now, I think if you wanted to meet a like-minded political person, you'd have to get out there and demonstrate. One of the yeah. ways that, you know, that we met partners when I was younger was that you got involved in something you cared about, whether it's a sport or in my case, the committees against the war in Vietnam which is where I met my husband and where a lot of people met their partners because they talked about ideas because they were involved in the same thing. And we have friends who met each other during the Bernie campaign for Bernie Sanders. But yeah. there aren't that many activities. In high school, I met friends who were political friends also for civil rights, who were standing up for civil rights. Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm reflecting now because like I spent the last three years at the job I was at for five years trying to unionize the workplace. Um, I no longer work there as of this week. This is my first week not working there. And um, I uh, I think I think all the managers know about this podcast now. This <laughs> sort of resi resignation email I sent I actually put a link to our last episode uh, in a sort of snarky snarky and very unprofessional way of course um i'm like sounds like fun I'm like, yes <laughs> i know i'm like the least i'm like the least professional professional anyone's ever met um and um something i found was we kind of covered this in the last episode too is just the the level of fear um yes of talking about unionizing even even if you're careful because like when you get trained to do some internal union organizing you're told like don't jump into like join a union you start with an easygoing like open-ended kind of rapport building conversation where you listen 80 percent and talk 20 percent, and you listen for people's grievances and you kind of do what a therapist does you validate stuff and you reflect back what they're saying and you build a little bit of rapport and then oh well hey you know me and so and so also kind of find it weird that you know they they're taking away the dental benefits or whatever and yes. they're not explaining it you know but i found it didn't really matter it could just be me it could be like i mean you know, as a man in like a 95% women field, right? Mental health, like that's a thing, right? So it's, it's weird to have like this guy trying to talk to every person in the workplace. Maybe they thought I was up to no good or something. But I've heard, I've heard about this in every workplace yes. in, in modern times that I think the way that unions were decimated also created a new culture of fear within workplaces where people don't talk to each other the same as they used to within workplaces in part because of the precarity and because, and this is a sort of invisible issue. I think most workers don't realize, but when the absence of unions, which were, I mean, they weren't normal. I think it was like one third of 35% of Americans were, in unions. So like one third. Yeah. So, I mean, and if you think of it that right. way, like that, that means roughly a third of workplaces were unionized. Right. So, so it was so commonplace for people to just know there's some sense of, of camaraderie here yes. and we're unified to some degree, not perfectly. We don't agree on everything and there are differences and stuff, but, but today there isn't, I mean, the, the assumption is I'm lucky to have this job. Shut up, shut your mouth, keep your head down. Don't rock the boat. And if somebody seems like they're rocking the boat, try to stay clear of them and don't be associated with them. That was kind of the impression I got over time and talking to others that this is the kind of culture we're in now. And I think, again, it just kind of speaks to like the, the cultural shift toward individualism and fear and isolation and alienation and fragmentation of American society to where the idea of it's, it's not only a good idea, but it's like 
an amazingly good idea to unionize your workplace. Like it's one of the best right. possible things you can do is now like one of the most terrifying things to, to most people because of the level of precarity. So bringing it back to dating, you know, I, I think it's also indicative of just how difficult it seems for people to just talk to each other. Yes. And, and with, with the goal of like, let's try to unify around something we're so different from each other and there's so much to fear from each other. And well, what if, what if so-and-so says that, or um, what if we get in trouble or whatever? It doesn't seem like that was present in the same way. It before. wasn't because people had job security. However, one of the things that's happening now, which is quite amazing is that with the upsurge of Americans, black and white and Brown and so on saying, We've had a knee on our necks for the last 50 years, since the 70s. We're tired of it. None of us mm -hmm. can breathe very well. And we mm -hmm. will unify. And so unionizing in the Texas sector is exploding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Unionizing That's across exciting. the, because it's occurring to people, wait a minute. This party of I can make it if I really try by myself, mm -hmm. that's over. If yeah, we're going to bullshit. Yeah, if we're going to make it, we have to make it the way the Europeans always knew they had to together at the bottom. I mean, I mean I think it's the way everybody has always done, it, you know. Yes, it's, it's why it's it's I just I think it's why collectivism has to be colonized out of people, you know. Um Yes, individualism it does. in individualism has to be really I think m manipulated into people cuz I mean, I think most kids understand out. cooperation. Yeah. I mean, kid, just when you observe kids, right? Like kids, my, my, some, my two, of my, my best friends, they live on our property, this two year old kid who every time I see him, he's like trying to share his food with me or share uh -huh. his toys with me or whatever. And like, I think if, when we talk about human nature, like capitalists have done a really good job of drilling into everyone's head that, that competition is human nature. I think cooperation is just as, just as if not more. Absolutely. So this, I, this idea of like, we have to stick together. And you know what? It's fun to stick together, like playing and connecting and finding joyous things to do together, dancing and singing and making art and making music. But those are actually, again, you just look at kids, like that's the natural orientation of and humans, look, I think. When it isn't, any nursery school operates like a social or socialist or communist state. They don't say, you like that truck? <laughs> Hit Johnny, steal his truck, take everybody's truck. <laughs> then you'll have all the trucks and you can sell them back to the kids who want to play. Yeah. No, yeah, they don't. Yeah. You have to share. Right. It's sharing and caring. <laughs> it's the most, it's the most like hippie and like communist thing. Well, I guess hi hippies and communists is. are very different, but you yeah, can't, it's, it's, an, it's incredible. You can't get through nursery school without learning how to share, without learning how to wait your turn and so on. And I think what happened is that in the very early societies, they were all communist because, let's face it, people are not the swiftest, they're not the, they don't have the best eyesight, they don't have the best hearing, they're not the most physically powerful, but they can cooperate. They can chase the mm -hmm. great beast into the pit that they all dug together, throw their little stones kill the thing and cut it up and share because they mm. they didn't have enough to have some people have a lot that changed as people began to be able to herd animals and accumulate more but the early, early people were all communist and all children are taught to share because they can't get through nursery school without it so talking about sharing, I would like to share with our listeners, for anybody who is experiencing excruciating loneliness because of uh, the current conditions, not just from COVID, I think COVID makes everything so yes. um, extremely and painfully obvious of like how disconnected and fragmented we are and really already were. But even before that, um, you know, I remember when I was like pretty chronically single um, and couldn't keep a relationship for a long time, um, how excruciatingly painful that feeling of loneliness is and there's there is more there's more studies coming out of just like there's an epidemic of loneliness but for men um 
I think it's a factor in like the school shooting stuff and all that, the mass shooting stuff. I, yes. th- I don't think it's like the reason and I don't think men are entitled to like getting touched by women and stuff. But I think the the extreme degree of like, I feel like I'm shriveling up and dying because I have no one in my life. Like I think for men, the way we're socialized is it, it becomes this externalized anger and hatred and like revenge on everybody around you kind of thing, which is toxic and terrible. And at the same time, it's like I want any um, like any men listening who who are like, yeah, I can't get a date. I've been on Tinder for five years. I'm ugly. I'm terrible. I'm stupid. Aww. Nobody likes me. I have no money. There's so many men that feel that way. I everything Harriet and I are talking about, like, try to try to. Here's my sort of message directly to you, bro, is that, you know, you may not get a date for another five years. Um, that's something I kind of had to accept. And I think we need to start thinking about connectivity a lot differently and not just yes. in the romantic and sexual realm. Because I think the more that I started feeling connected and I, I'm like addicted to this stuff. It's why I've been addicted to activism for like a decade is that there's a sort of like, it's almost like a higher power thing. If you sort of believe there is something greater than all of us mm-hmm. individually uh, like be- beyond us yeah. that can only be discovered through each other and through the things that we do together, through like common shared beliefs and struggles and actions. And if you really kind of throw yourself into to movements, and it doesn't have to be like, you could even be like a not very kind of left-wing person listening to our like super commie therapist podcast. And you don't have to <laughs> share our exact sort of political alignments. But just to think like, you know, there's probably neighbors nearby who would appreciate if you got them groceries um, like some elderly uh, people that like can't go out and drive or, or like, and you will feel really good about that. You'll feel really connected. You'll feel desired by somebody. Um, if there are like something outside of my house, we have this, a free library. I just took like a, um, it was like a bookshelf that somebody left out on the curb and I converted it into, um, or it wasn't even a bookshelf. It was like a, a cabinet or something. But um, I put a bunch of uh, books that I didn't want anymore. And then, I wrote, you know, take a book, leave a book. And now we have neighbors stopping at our house every day and they'll talk to me on the porch. I'll talk to whoever is on the porch and they're talking to each other. I mean, I, I think they should be more socially distant right now, but there are so many different ways to figure out little, um, even subversive, like, like ways to, to, uh, to make connections with other people. So we have our neighborhoods, we have our workplaces, we have, um, our beliefs mentioned, our beliefs that will connect us. You can find people online that will, you know, do like, I mean, if you're into like Marxist reading groups or something, there's plenty of those going on right now. There's other things like that. I mean, there's, there's, you could probably get on zoom calls with people who like to bake sourdough bread together or something like that. Right. And I just, you know, it's not the same as like having sex. Like I will be, I will be honest about that. Like these things don't feel as good as sex um, or just being like touched, like having someone hold your hand or, or give you a long hug or something like that. But, um, they, I, I want to say they're almost as good. Like it just feels really good to be connected to people. It does. And you know, I did a study of those mass murderers for months. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you told me about that. They're all people who don't have an ongoing enriching relationship and, or who are alien and who don't have a regular connection and job with other people. Yeah. And I believe it. Many of them have just recently lost a relationship. And one of the reasons that all of them are men, and in this is because men are emotionally deprived in our culture. They're not supposed to hold hands and talk and walk and, you know, be deep friends and get emotional support and call each other just to let each other know how they're feeling. One of the reasons that women are not mass murderers is partly that the gun culture is a refuge for rageful men, but partly Mm. it's because we have access to relationships with children, to relationships with family, to relationships with friends that are emotional relationships. Men don't call each other up and say, oh, I had this painful experience and so on. They don't call each other up to share their personal feelings. And that's a huge privation. And their entry point is sex. Their entry point to intimacy is sex. And if they talk that way, it's only to 
a girlfriend or if they're gay to a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrible mm -hmm. privation. You know, I thought I had like a pretty woke set of friends over the years. And I have actually found over the years that my, my male friends are, <laughs> and that, no, no offense to, if you guys are listening. Uh, well, I'll just say it. You guys are like the least rely, like emotionally reliable people I've ever met. Um, sure. And that, like, and I probably am too to a certain degree. And I have a pretty abrasive, like, it's like I'm a, th I'm a therapist, but I'm like when I'm not being a therapist, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of, like a dick. Like to be honest, like I'm kind <laughs> of like a guy, um, which 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 is actually attractive for some people as a therapist. They're like I want to talk to a guy or whatever. <laughs> um, but like, um, I've found that like in terms of being able to like sort of hold emotional space, seem interested and curious um, to want to connect in a mm. way that's not just through like drinking or another, any activity. Um, yeah. Of just like, just how are you doing? Yeah. Is, um, is so, is so hard. Like in the hardest times of my life, and I don't, I mean, I have mixed feelings about the concept and the conversation about emotional labor, which is like maybe a whole other discussion. But um, I, you know, I understand why a lot of women have said in, in different kind of feminist spheres, like, men, get your shit together because we can't all always be your on-call therapists or whatever. I, right. I, I get that because, because, and once I, I started wrapping my head around that concept, I was like, well, I'll see if I can reach out to my guy friends more. And I just found like, you can't, like, they won't do it. You know, it's they, don't, much harder. they don't accept the calls. They don't respond to the texts. If, if there's vulnerability coming from another man, no matter how sort of conscious they are, I think there's a fear of there's something embedded that's either it's, there's something like homosexual happening. Yes. I'm afraid I'm grossed out. There's, and I'm talking about straight men, obviously. Yes. Um, although, although with gay men, I found like with gay friends, I think the other thing is like, um, if the pool, if the dating pool is really small for gay men, <clears throat> I've had a, a couple of gay guy friends who I think, um, maybe this is like narcissistic of me, but I, I began to think like, oh, well maybe they were attracted to me. And so they didn't want to get close. <clears throat> so there wasn't really that same level of vulnerability. Um, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's just cause they discovered that I was a, I'm an, I'm an abrasive person or something and I turned them off. But in general, I think, <clears throat> I think people in general tend to turn to women, um, because you guys as women have been socialized in that way. But yeah, I, I do think that, you know, zooming back out to like the economy and then within dating, we need to figure something else out that gets men connected yes. in a way that isn't dependent on, uh, sex with women right. to find an entry point toward like emotional satisfaction and that like they feel, they feel valuable and meaningful. You know? That's right. And part of, dating is that difference in what people are looking for and a kind of reductionism into sexual hookups, which are often very lonely. And I think one of the things that's changed is that with the coronavirus, the dating sites like Craigslist are very different men are not saying looking for sex, discreet sex in the early afternoon. It's much more like looking for a COVID bay, really lonely. Yeah. And because their entryway to connection and is sex, whereas women look to other women, and even married women have routinely looked to other women for their emotional support because right. their husbands or lovers are are not emotionally available. It's a very sad thing. And now with dating being so mechanized and so impersonal, it's really frightening. You know, one thing though that I think, if you think this is crazy, let me know, but I think one thing that capitalism kind of recuperated over this whole period that we just dis discussed, ec the economic changes, is that the kind of feminism and the kind of identity politics that the sort of liber that's the liberal norm now started to frame all of this as, well, m it's because men are bad. Like, right. Men just need to figure out their shit. And like, 
there's obviously some truth to that. I mean, I feel sometimes like with my guy friends, I'm just like, just deal with your fucking depression. Like talk to somebody, see a therapist, work right. out your shit. And then, and then let's talk because I can't, I can't deal with this hot and cold shit from you guys, you know? And like, that goes for me, to, I think just most like men at this point, it's like this, this pattern with all of us. Um, but again, you zoom out and you look at the economic context and you're like, well, wait, how did this happen? <clears throat> Was it that men were always like this? Well, yeah. maybe to some degree, but there was a totally different like community that men were in. Like there were totally different social functions for men to find themselves in that I don't, you know, wasn't leading to mass shootings at least. Um, no, cause they had a place, you know, one of the things is men were socialized to go out, make a living in the hard world, not show their feelings, not relate intimately, but have a wife at home taking care of their emotional needs, their needs to socially connect with other people, their household maintenance, their children, and the whole personal realm. Now that party started to be over when the capitalists deserted America and women mm -hmm. were pushed into the workplace in order right. to survive. And so that gender expectations were turned upside down and women had a women's movement behind us to fight for inclusion economically and politically. And men didn't have a movement behind them. And women mm -hmm. asked men for help in the household by calling a lot of household work shit work, like creating mm -hmm. order and cleanliness. Who's going to be attracted to shit work? Not too many men. Mm -hmm. We didn't mm -hmm. say, we need you to join us. We need you to share all the things we learn. Because since... Mm -hmm. Our movement was dominated by people like Gloria Steinem, a CIA agent, in order to get us out into the workforce to compensate for the capitalist desertion of the United States. They emphasized that men were, you know, I'll put it this way, Steinem had this thing, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Okay, it's hmm. a, it's a disgusting way of looking at another human. And so we never figured out as feminists, what do you learn from creating order? It still hasn't been figured mm -hmm. out. What do you create by creating cleanliness? What do you learn from taking care of vulnerable lives, whether they're old mm -hmm. people or children? Those skills have begun to be explored. I am an earlier explorer of that on emotional labor, but really, mm -hmm men didn't have a movement to help them. And men need help to break out of those gender stereotypes and to be able to emotionally relate. They need, we all, we're social animals, we need social backing. And men have been deprived. You know, I've wondered since the 2016 election, could so many interesting things happen back then with like, you know, some stuff that was obviously misogynistic toward Hillary Clinton. And then there was the, the trope of the Bernie bro, which then, you know, a lot of like women of color were coming out saying like, am I a, a Bernie bro? <laughs> like, right. like, or black women, Bernie bros. But I do think, you know, that the thing that we did see with like a lot of men, particularly white men kind of coming out in droves, like really angry at the DNC at like the, the tepid, the tepid kind of liberalism that has just like not, not moved society in any direction that I think any, most people actually want it to go really right um except for except for like you know bosses and like landlords and stuff um of, of any identity was that the sort of identitarian thing um came out really hard and then it, it tried to shift a conversation into a different direction i started to wonder in retrospect though was it a good thing and is it a good thing like maybe minus the toxic uh masculinity part like for men if men have found like let's say socialism like a, a highly politically engaged um, attempt to systemically improve human conditions, if that is like, could that be framed as a connective um, intervention to like solve the problem of loneliness and alienation and disconnection that, that also moves towards sort of a caring for others, maybe not in an emotional or interpersonal way, you know, but, but a um, political and social way, of course. And also in yeah. order to create a movement together, you have to respect the whole people you're working with, their emotional lives, their intellectual lives. And right. there is a, a 
there are wonderful things about traditional masculinity that were kind of lost. And one thing should have mm -hmm. been celebrated, which is reliability and responsibility mm -hmm. and protectiveness. Right. Hard work. And yeah, protectiveness yeah. of vulnerable mm. people. Those are mm. beautiful qualities, but the, mm -hmm. there was no men's movement. And women were well, not became, helpful. I think they became demonized too. Like that's something I kind right. of I saw within within the university culture when I was at UCSB. And I feel like this, you know, we're having a moment now where people are stepping back um, and looking at the, the the way that identity politics evolved into white people bad, men bad, cisgender mm. people bad, straight people bad. Yeah. Um, that you know, I, th I think looking back, it's just like how th how the hell did that happen? Like that's not. Who does that? Who does that connect who to who? You know, um, yeah. Like, like who who does that really benefit? And um, I think because because I think the other thing you're saying is those traits, like those traditional masculine traits, they're not biological. They're skills that can just be learned by people. That's right. Um, being protective, being um, I don't know, dutiful or responsible or like right. uh, productive and not productive for the boss, for the capitalist class, being productive for the sake of like, we need more of these things. We need more of this stuff. We need more of these tasks to be completed within a socially connective context. Like those are, if, if those are masculine things, and I don't really think, I don't think they are, but I think, you know, when you say traditional masculinity, those are the sort of socialized and then sort of, um, behaviors that were then considered sort of stereotypical right but those are really valuable just Very. as you're saying all the different all the all the feminine things of of nurturing and caring and um uh all the emotional labor stuff as well um, is very valuable i i also have to say that with this identitarian thing that is a direct intervention in um the great Wurlitzer. Right. mission of the FBI and CIA to convert the women's liberation movement and the civil rights movement into identitarian movements so that you have women against men, you have blacks against white, and it was to crush the potential class unity that would mm -hmm. actually overthrow capitalism and replace it with a more compassionate system. As long as you get people fighting each other, instead of saying, okay, we are different people, we've had different levels of oppression, but we are one. And that is a most beautiful thing about the Black Lives Matter movement, because those people marching and putting their lives on the line are not just black by any means. Mm -hmm. They're black and white together, because they understand somewhere that capitalist oppression and class oppression are at least, if not more, powerful than gender oppression mm -hmm. and race oppression. They're all right in there and have to be recognized. And that's why I think people are joining unions now in some mm -hmm. areas because they realize we have to get together, not have a union for blacks and a union for whites, each of which can be picked off. There's there's studies now indicating they're, they're newer studies, but that um, white racial resentment against people of color is lower in multiracial unions, and that and and it should also be mentioned that there isn't really any evidence that uh, implicit bias and diversity trainings have that same effect for white uh, workers, um, which is to say more broadly that the the stuff that the capitalist class um, will pay a lot of money for to educate its uh, workforce about how to like not be racist or not be sexist or whatever. Um, it's, it's very profitable for the people that like run the trainings. Like there's a mm. whole kind of diversity industry now. Um, but the research does not show that that actually reduces um, say implicit bias or right. that it increases a sense of camaraderie amongst say men and women in black and white and Latino or whatever, or gay and straight or whatever it, it um, I mean, I don't know about the research, but I know like, you know, um, people are scared to even say this, but there, it can create sort of a culture of fear where it's like, well, I'm so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing right. that will be interpreted as a microaggression. And then I might get talked to by HR. And if I get written up three times for a thing, I didn't even really know what I did. I might lose my job. Whereas the opposite approach, which is like a bottom up workers bound together 
um, to increase condi- in, increase their their working conditions together appears to actually reduce those biases, and that's something that management will never they won't pay no. a union to come in and train you. No, you know? they won't. Um, so <laughs> it's it's interesting to see like the the dominant um, the dominant mode of trying to address the implicit bias issues has been something that conveniently can can continue to maximize profits and uh, decrease the power and the conditions of the working class. And then, Whereas the solutions that have been there all the time, you know, they're not profitable to capitalists. And, that's, and then they can just say why. it's the crude, stupid racism, racism of our workers when it isn't. Right. Actually, Martin right. Luther King was very strong on this. He said the, gradi- the best, yeah. he didn't use the word diversity training, but he said... Mm-hmm. Unions are the way. Unions are the best anti-poverty program. Unions are the best racial unity program. And he said that when he addressed the International Longshoremen's Union, which became a powerful union when they had total rights for blacks, because otherwise they'd, the previous one before the socialists and communists took over that union, they uh, had huge racial divisions. They didn't hire black dock workers. And then when they were on strike, blacks became strike breakers. But by uniting, that didn't happen. And Martin Luther King was, look, he died. He was shot while supporting the Memphis sanitation sanitation workers. workers. And he Mm -hmm. started being famous at the bus boycott which was people of all races saying, stop it, we don't want blacks to have to go to the back of the bus, and unified Mm -hmm. people. And there were white buses coming down for integration, and it was a black and white together thing, the way the Black Lives Matter is. Because if Mm -hmm. class is a huge problem, and they want to ignore it, they want to equate, the women at Fox News have had big Me Too, um, big Me Too protests, and there's another one now, mm-hmm. because women at the top at Fox News want to be able to be on these res- racist, spouting racism and sexism, and being paid as much as men, and not being sexually objectified. That's fine for gender equity, but it doesn't touch the problems of the fact that only 3% of American women earn $150,000 or more, and $150,000 is what defines an income needed Mm. for a middle-class life. Mm. And so you have huge discrepancies among women. And those strikes that unite men and women and those movements that unite men and women for class justice change a lot of racial and gender dynamics and they can be changed within those movements because there's a powerful reason to connect not just listening to the boss say some words uh i hate to be bossy but i'm thinking we've been going for about an hour might be time to wrap up okay let's wrap up around dating too because well let's tie it back yeah 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 um sorry i was trying to make a boss joke Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, Make well, your joke. No, that was it. It was the sorry to be bossy. Is it was okay. funny? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the connections that go back to dating really just have to do with connectivity. Again, yes. like most of the things we're talking about, that the, the economic trends of the last, you know, few decades um, were. I mean, they probably were designed to make us less connected, or at least they were designed to maximize profit, which made us less connected. And I think what we're seeing now with um, dating apps and people not knowing how to talk to each other in person and the epidemic of loneliness and um, the the rise of incels, which like wasn't a thing before, um, all has to do with the the economic context we're in. So I don't know. And the social. Listeners and the social. And the social context, because one of the things that allows men and women to understand one another and black and whites and Hispanics and everyone else, Asians, is that we're we're trying to do something together for all of us, whether it's a Mm -hmm. union or a protest. And that brings Mm -hmm. us together in a way that Tinder never can. Maybe we need a new app like Tinder 
like <laughs> anti-capitalist Tinder or something. It's like a, no, it's like I, a worker co-op or like. <laughs> I think we need a movement. We need a yeah, movement same. with a party that unites all our concerns from climate to racism, to sexism, to class discrimination, to redistributing the wealth. You know, I should say in Europe, they have a maximum, you have a minimum wage and a maximum wage. We need right, a movement right. that demands class, race, and gender mm -hmm. things. And we need to do it together so we yeah. lose our biases. And we'll find partners right. there too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, find a find a husband or wife or whatever Lover, through your, whatever uh, through your union activity. Right. Well, I met, I, met, I met my current partner through OkCupid. And like we actually have very similar values, but she's not like rah 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 like molotov cocktails every day um she's she actually balances me out because that, so that's the other thing is like you get two super intense activist people dating and they might try to kill each other so i, I actually so on the flip side to be you know dialectical about it um you know you don't you don't have to find people through the movement but but yeah i think i think just um connective social yes. um activities activities are are I think would be a better way for people to start talking to each other. But again, we're, we're in, we're, we're part of this massive machine that we can't in a small, in, in our teeny tiny actions every day, we can't really make a dent in. So I think we do have to think in terms of a movement yes. uh, that's, that's broad enough to actually make a change in it. So, and it's coming with that said, yes, mm -hmm. with, and it is coming. There's more political activity than there have been for 50 years. And hopefully yeah. as people connect, around their values and things that are important to them, they won't need Tinder. Yeah, down with Tinder. Just delete your Tinder. It'll be <laughs> yes, fine. Yes, Um Just listen to podcasts. Yes, Okay, connect. well, so if anybody wants to contact us, our email is itsnotjustinyourhead.com. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, it's um, patreon.com slash itsnotjustinyourhead. And, and bye see you bye. next time. See you next time. <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye-bye.